Here's Pastor Steve Converse to begin our time together today as we look forward to celebrating our country's anniversary. Mark it well, the quality of our culture is marked by the content of our prayers. It's very easy for us to sit in the four walls of the church and point at the world and go, oh, look at how bad they are. But how often are we on our knees praying for them, praying for their salvation, praying for Christ somehow to work in us and through us to reach out to them? Every 4th of July, we celebrate the birth of our country. And we're reminded afresh of one of the founding principles of our country, in God we trust. That's the subject of our time today as we look forward to the 4th of July and celebrating our country's birth. And this main principle that for us as Christians should remain central in our lives. Not only as we seek to live out our lives on a daily basis, but as we seek to live our lives in front of a country and a nation that surrounds us, that we might be a light on a hill, a witness and testimony to God's goodness and grace. Here's Pastor Steve Converse now with today's broadcast of Graceful Truth from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. But today I wanted to uh, just focus on the 4th of July a little bit in our country our founding fathers, uh, our faith. This weekend is quite a weekend for Americans. Um, They celebrate the birth of our nation. We pause today and we acknowledge the independence of our country. And it's been quoted that America is great because America is good. You've heard that? And the quote goes on and says, and if America ever ceases to be great, it will be because... It has ceased to be good. Even though there's a lot of good left in our country, there's also a lot of bad. America is still great, but I think that sometimes when we look a little closer, when we look under the the veneer, under the surface, there are some cracks, there are some flaws in our goodness. Over the past 40 years, history has shown that we have drifted significantly from the goodness that made America so great. Our founding fathers were men of faith who never intended a wall to be built of separation, but intended to establish one nation under God. That was their desire. That was their creed. That was their driving element. That's what held them together. That's what caused them to wake up another day. And I think today to pretend somehow that the founding fathers were either atheists or even deists, as some claim, who wanted God out of public policy altogether, it's just wrong. It's not a proper representation of what history shows us. It's even more than that. I would say it's destructive. It creates kind of a vacuum in which people of faith become the targets of ridicule and hatred. There was an article in the Washington Post years ago, and it ridiculed Christians. And one of the quotes that they they said in this article... They basically said that Christians are a bunch of easily controlled, uneducated, stupid people. Well, to say the least, that irritated a lot of Christians (laughs) when they read that. And the story doesn't end there. It goes on because for the next two or three days after that story ran, the post-faxes, fax machines were jammed with Christians sending in faxing in their income statements, their degrees, and their diplomas, and their business licenses, and all sorts of things. 
See, the founding fathers called America a Christian nation. And don't believe anybody that tells you any different. It's just part of our history. The Supreme Court affirmed that it was a Christian nation for well over 100 years. Religion was indispensable to the nation. Do you know the founding fathers, you read through their speeches and stuff like that, they quoted the Bible profusely. Somebody estimated that 34% of all their quotes came right from Scripture itself. Do you know that they used federal dollars to pay for missionaries to go reach out to the Indians? They used federal dollars to pay for Bibles, to provide Bibles for the Indians? Do you know the first official act of Congress was to appoint a chaplain and to open in prayer? I mean, it's amazing how far we've come. But it's also amazing how far we've fallen away from our founding fathers' roots that were rooted in the Christian faith. So with all that, what does that say about us? What's our responsibility today? I want to remind you, with the words of Christ and the words of Paul, I want to look at our priority, our place, and our purpose. Our priority, our place, and our purpose. Because you know what? To be honest, for the last 40 years, I think the Christian church has done a pretty lousy job of impacting the world in which we live. We're a nation of people who go to church. (laughs) Churchgoers. We're the most Religious nation in the world, someone said. Last estimate, over 150 million of our citizens belong to some kind of church. But we failed to impact, it seems, public policy. We failed to impact the marketplace. We failed to impact a lot of different areas. And as one nation under God, I think our first priority should be that we should be people of prayer. People of prayer. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter. 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Our first priority has got to be that we are people of prayer. Look at what he says here in 1 Timothy, Paul's writing, beginning in verse 1, chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, 1. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for the kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. So as people of faith, our first priority should be that we are people of prayer. The first priority should be that we are people of prayer. And I'm not just saying that because it's the Christian thing to do. But I think, first of all, we have to do that because it's what I like to call proactive. It's proactive. Do you know that praying is one of the most important, powerful, even politically culturally transforming tool that God gave us on planet Earth? The Bible claims in 1 Timothy that it should be our first response. He says, therefore I exalt, I exhort, in verse 1, first of all. I mean, prayer is usually the first thing we talk about, the last thing we do. At least sometimes it is in my life. And if we're honest, it is in all of our lives that way. Paul uses a couple different words here for prayer. He says, first of all, there, he goes, I urge you. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to pull you close together. I want to I really get your commitment out of this. I 
exhort first of all, I urge you. It's a personal plea. And that word first there means first in matter of importance. First in matter of importance. In other words, the most important thing that we could do as believers, and it seems like it's the last thing we do, is pray. The very first thing we should do is pray for kings and those in authority. That's what he says. He uses different words here for prayer. The idea of requests, of supplications, talks of needs. When our nation is needy, we need to pray. We need to pray for our nation. He uses the word prayer there. It's kind of the common communication. It's God just wants us to talk to him about the condition of our society. He wants to, us to talk to him, to ask him to work in the culture in which we live through us. He uses the word intercession there, which means to step in on behalf of someone. We need to be willing to do that as Christians. And he closes it off, we should do all that with an attitude of what? Thanksgiving. I mean, if we were to go around the room and ask how many of you pray for our president, the cabinet, the senate, and the house, and the congress, and, and the, the governor every day, how many of you pray for the Supreme Court? I don't know, I, I couldn't put my hand up. But it's the most important thing that we could do to affect change in their lives. And I hope this morning we walk away from our message here with just a little bit more conviction that will lead us to pray. Because it's proactive. It's what God expects us to do. But it's also pleasing. He says there that it's good. That it pleases God. This is something that is is beautiful to God when we when his people are called together to pray for their country, for their leaders. That word pleases means to receive something gladly. It's kind of like you're getting a gift at Christmas time, you know, you receive it gladly. You don't, oh, no, not another, I don't want that. No, you don't do that. You, you receive it with open arms. It's pleasing to God. It's not only proactive, it's pleasing, but it's also pivotal. It's pivotal that we're people of prayer. I mean, sometimes my theology leads me to this point. Have you ever been here? Well, you know what? God is God. I'm not. He's going to do what he's going to do anyway. So what are my prayers going to make any difference? You ever been there? I've been there. Why even bother? Well, the reason is because you look through Scripture. First of all, we're instructed to pray. But secondly, when you see God dealing with the prayers of his people, he loves to respond to the requests of his people. That pleases him. You can look throughout the Bible. And you see over and over and over again where God responded to the requests of his people. Now, a lot of times our prayers tend to focus on us, our family, our kids, our grandkids, our health, or whatever, family, job, money, whatever it might be. But here in this text, it's amazing to me that Paul tells Timothy, first of all, before anything else, the one thing I want to make sure that you're doing is that you're praying for the king. You're praying for the king. And for those in authority over you. Now, you might say that's kind of a, well, okay, so what? So you're saying we should pray for our president, okay. But you have to understand the context here. You have to understand who was king when Paul was writing this. It was Nero. You know what Nero did? Nero basically made up a big story and blamed all the Christians for the burning of Rome. And caused them to be persecuted and executed 
by the thousands. And here is Paul saying, you need to pray for that man? See, so many times as believers, we think, well, okay, we don't disagree. We agree or we disagree with the presidential policy. And that dictates whether or not we're going to pray for him. Oh, if we have a a president that claims to be a born-again Christian, oh, we're going to be on our knees every day. But if we have a president that claims to be, well, maybe he's Muslim, maybe he's Christian, maybe he doesn't know what he is, who knows? Well, then, you know, what's the use? We should be praying even more for that guy. Stop and think about it. If anybody needs our prayer, it's President Obama at this point in time. I would not want his job. No way. It's a no-win situation almost. And the reason we do that, the reason we're to be praying for those in authority over us, and the text points that out, is because so that we can lead, what's it say, quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. So we're to be people of prayer. Mark it well, the quality of our culture is marked by the content of our prayers. It's very easy for us to sit in the four walls of the church and point at the world and go, oh, look at how bad they are. But how often are we on our knees praying for them? Praying for their salvation, praying for Christ somehow to work in us and through us to reach out to them. So our priority should be for people of prayer. But the second point is our place. What is our place in this society? And I want you to turn over to what the verses that Jerry read, Matthew 5, because it points out to us very clearly what our place is to be. We should be people of prayer who, and the second point is, who engage society. We're not to run and, and make a hut up in the mountains and live in a monastery somewhere. We're supposed to be engaged in our society. Look at... I know he read this, but I want to read it again in Matthew 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth, verse 13. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He gives another illustration. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men so that when they see your good works, what do they do? They glorify you? No, they glorify God. Three reasons why we should be engaged in our society. First of all, he says there, you are the salt of the earth. We should season it. We are left here for a purpose. When God saved us, he could have just, his plan could have been, you know what? I'm just going to take you out of here. You're just going to be gone. Once you're saved, I'm I'm hijacking you up to heaven. I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? But that's not his plan. His plan is to leave us here so that we can season this earth. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Notice it doesn't say that you should become the salt of the earth. You see that? It doesn't say that. It says you are the salt of the earth. People of faith are the seasoning agent in our society, in our culture in which we live. And like it or not, that's what we are. That's what we're to be. There's no plan B. And 
to be real honest with you, so many times as Christians, we've done a lousy job at this. By overkill. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? I've heard Christians do cruel and, and just belligerent things in the name of Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you had a six-ounce filet and you were going to season it before you put it on the barbecue, would you take five pounds of salt and dump it on that filet? I don't think so. See, salt is to be a seasoning agent. I mean, if you know anything about me, you know that I enjoy a good bowl of ice cream, right? Well, I, I enjoy something even more, homemade ice cream. And I remember one time when we were smaller, I don't know if it was my sister or my brother, we were making homemade ice cream. And, you know, we had the barrel and the mixer thing, you had to turn it or whatever. And I don't know what happened with the, the thing that holds the ice cream, but, you know, you put the rock salt around it with the ice and everything. Somehow it penetrated that little tin can. And I remember after we had made all the ice cream and everything, we got the bowls out and we had big bowl of ice cream. And everybody took a big bite of this vanilla ice cream. And it was salty. It was horrible. I mean, we we're all gagging. We we're spitting it out. It's like, what happened? And then we realized that part of the, the can that was holding the ice cream had a hole in it and all the salt and the brine was going into the ice cream as we mixed it up. It was horrible. See, salt is a seasoning agent, but you don't, you don't necessarily want salt on your ice cream. At least I don't. But, you know, sometimes that's how Christians are in the world. They're so obnoxious. They're so combative. They overdo it in an unhealthy way. Have you ever cut yourself and got salt in that wound? How's it feel? Ouch! You don't like it. Doesn't feel good. See, people of faith are sometimes more like salt in the wound than the salt that heals and soothes and seasons. See, we're to be the, the oil of grace that is in this world, in this lost and dying world, and we're to be that all God calls us to be. But we're to do it in a seasoning way, not in a way that's rude or crude, or judgmental. You don't see those characteristics in Christ. Sure, Christ called sin, sin, and he called hypocrites, hypocrites. That's fine. But he was also compassionate. So we should engage society so that we can be a seasoning agent in that society. Secondly, so that we can preserve it. Do you know that our Christian faith is really acts as a moral disinfectant to this society in which we live. In other words, it helps stop some of this decay and this perverse behavior that goes on around us. We should be part of the solution to this, not part of the problem. And so many times we got that backwards. You know, you can take a filet and set it next to a little teaspoon of salt all day long. And it's not going to have any effect on that filet, is it? It's not going to do anything for it. What do you have to do to make that salt affect that filet, that piece of meat? Is you have to take that salt and you have to sprinkle it on the filet. It has to come in contact with the meat. 
Or it's not going to do any good. It can sit in your cupboard all day long. You can have all kinds of spices in your cupboard. But if you never use them to interact with the food you eat, your food's going to be kind of bland. We're called to penetrate our society with our Christian faith. And our founding fathers believed that. Look at what John Adams said. Statesmen may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion... And morality alone, which can establish the principles upon which freedom can be securely, can securely stand. One of our founding fathers. Look at what Benjamin Rush said. I have been alternately called an aristocrat and a democrat. I am neither. I am a Christocrat. <laughs> I believe all power will always fail of producing order and happiness in the hands of man. He alone who created and redeemed man is qualified to govern him. And then Thomas Jefferson. Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their own firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God, that they are not to be violated but with his wrath, indeed I tremble for my country. Now remember, this was him writing this. When I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. See, the founding fathers agreed that Jesus, when they came together, that he was the center point. The Christian faith. And we learn from his words, and we learn even from their words, that they engage society. So we should season it, we should preserve it, and then thirdly, we should enlighten it. Verse 14 says that you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do you put a light under a, a basket, but on a stand, so that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Once again, it doesn't say that you should become the light of the world, does it? It says you are. There's no second string here. There's no third string. We're it. That's it. And if we're not going to do our job, then there's going to be some darkness around us. So many times we complain in the society in which we live and all the debauchery and all the sin and all the filthiness that's going on all over the place. And yet how many times have we taken time to really pray and to ask God to move and to work? See, for better or worse, God intended that we are to be the people who light the way in an otherwise dark society. He left us here for that purpose. And just like the salt analogy, people of faith over the years haven't done all too well. Either we are all dark or we are so bright it's blinding. I mean, stop and think about this. What is the purpose of light? Is the purpose of light to blind someone or show them the way? See, sometimes as Christians, we become so assertive, we become so belligerent, that instead of showing the way, we blind people. Remember when I was in a cave one time, and it turned all the lights out. And I remember thinking, wow, it's really dark in here. And I wish somebody turned the light on, and somebody finally turned a flashlight on. And it was so relieving to feel that light come on. But it was almost painful when that person inadvertently shined the light in my eyes. So my pupils were like the size of quarters, probably, being in the dark. All of a sudden, you're, you know, if you ever had that habit, it's very irritating. It gives you a headache almost. See, light is it's not to blind somebody, but it's to show them the way. And we need to do a better job at showing people the way to Christ. 
Our priority is prayer. Our, our place is people who engage society. And thirdly, our purpose, people of prayer who engage society to counter a corrupt culture. That's the purpose. That's why God left us here, to counter a corrupt culture. But today I wanted to... Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650 650- 366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.